Okay, 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 here we go. Um, welcome back, it's great to see you. Any loose ends I need to tie up before we go? Seems like it's been forever. Uh, maybe, it, maybe it has been in some ways. Uh, this is Invocavit, the first uh, Sunday in Lent. Now, you remember this is famous in the Lutheran Church when Luther was uh, away in the Wartburg. You remember he was put under a death sentence by the emperor, and uh, it was said anyone who kills Luther does both the emperor and the pope a favor. And so uh, Luther hides out for a bit. First they think he's kidnapped. Turns out his pals kidnapped him. And uh, he lived as a, disguised as a knight for a while. And I think somebody just told me you can actually, they've got the armor there roundabout about uh, that he was wearing. You can, you can see what, you know, Luther is the knight. And then things sort of go straight to hell in Wittenberg because people push too hard uh, the Reformation. So. Uh, the Invocavit sermons that Luther came back and preached, he decided it was more important to stay and do the right thing than to sort of be safe where he was. He, he comes back and he preaches the Invocavit sermons about what the gospel really is. And the fascinating bit was that here was Luther, this great champion uh, of giving the people all that the Lord had to give. He comes back and he sees that while he was gone, some of the pastors have forced the people to... Um, take the supper in both kinds. That is, people previously either simply looked up at the point of the bells ringing uh, or took the host, only the bread, body, uh, in, their, in their mouths. Uh, then the, the, the pastors in Wittenberg had forced the people also to receive the chalice. Uh, and this scandalized them uh, because they weren't, hadn't been properly taught. So this is a good lesson for pastors about introducing things too quickly. So this is sort of a famous example of Luther doing uh, the wrong thing for the right reason, uh, which often happens in the church. You do the wrong thing for the right reason, pastorally, which means in another way saying that people can only bear so much. Of course, you have to try to press them out to the edge as far as possible. Luther didn't let that practice go on forever and ever. Um, but uh, he, he did come back and he, he removed the chalice again from the congregation until they'd been properly taught into it, and then uh, uh, later, you know, gave the chalice, and they all sort of rejoiced in having it in both kinds. And that, that, that groundwork was laid in these Lenten sermons, very famous set of certain sermons from Luther, uh, the Invocavit sermons uh, given in this week, uh, this first week of Lent. So, uh, you know, everything is about the congregation and how it flourishes. The, the, the thing you can never do, though, is step backwards or away from what the Lord would give. Uh, and you have to be clever enough to see that when Luther does that, he's not stepping backwards, but rather he, uh, he stretches people as far as they can stretch but doesn't break them. That's very different from people who will never stretch at all. You know, he stretches them as far as he can stretch them without breaking them, gives them a bit of rest, stretches them again. He's not unlike you or me. You see, you stretch as far as you can, then you stop, pause. Uh, when people gather their strength, get some teaching, stretch again. Uh, pause, stretch again. Sort of the, the way of the Christian life in this. Um, so uh, it's just, it's fascinating, especially when it happens with doctrine. Uh, something that Luther cared deeply about, and you too. So, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. Now, if you kind of think that through, if Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil, if they're destroyed, then the only proper works left 
are, are the works of the angels or the works of the Father. And so uh, you always want to be found on the side of the angels. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. Let's pray. O God, by whose spirit we are led into the wilderness of trial, grant that standing in thy strength against the powers of darkness, we may so win the victory over all evil suggestions that with singleness of heart we may ever serve thee and thee alone. Through him who was in all points tempted as we are, thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So, <clears throat> okay, um, I didn't hand anything out for you. It just has been so long since we chattered. I wasn't sure you could even remem remember where we were. But if you could turn to First Peter, you know, we just probably should scooch through this uh, first chapter as a basis for um, going forward. Two things by way of introduction. One is, uh, one of the things I was asking you to do was to learn your lines. So even today, as you sort of go through this, as we quickly read through chapter one again, what I hope that you'll do uh, is in your mind, and you can do this any way that it sort of suits you. I've suggested a couple of ways, but maybe you could, you could find a way that you could learn carefully how to speak about, um, to speak about uh, the faith. So it's very important that you learn your lines. Uh, you know, anybody, and then it's very important beyond that to be able to speak about it, but there's no point in having courage if you have nothing to say. Uh, one of the good things about First Peter is, you remember that this is a sermon disguised as a letter. This was probably read, you know, toward baptism in the church, not unlike this period of Lent when uh, often many adults would be brought to be baptized at the Easter Vigil. So this is a sermon disguised as a letter, and it seems to have been read to the new Christians as they sat in the midst of the older Christians. So you can kind of see what's happening, which is it's a, it's a laying out. Uh, the, you know, Peter has these lines, and he wants to teach them. So he's learned his lines, and now he teaches. That's the same way the church should work with you. You should be able to say these very basic things about who Christ is and why it is important uh, that people come to Christ. The church in our age has almost wholly lost a mission impulse. It has lost that, uh, and I'm talking about a pure mission impulse now. I'm not talking about acts of mercy necessarily. The church is actually pretty good on acts of mercy these days. What it's not very good on is giving a clear and winsome witness to Christ. That proves to be too difficult for us as a church now, big C in the world. Um, but nevertheless, uh, people aren't saved without Christ. There's one name given under heaven among men by which we're saved, and you and I should be able to speak to that name. So uh, I left you way back when with the suggestion that this is like um, learning to walk again. Remember, that was the last thing I said to you, that uh, these people, these people who are in the diaspora, these people who have been scattered, what they are trying to do is to learn to walk again, to live again. 
They're trying to sort out how their life works. The church fails miserably when it looks like the world. You can, you can always tell when the church has gone bad, and you can always tell when people bring, uh, you always know when it goes. The best thing that can happen in the church is when people bring all their skills, and those then are subsumed under the gospel. The worst thing that can happen is when they bring their skills and the gospel is subsumed under that. You know, so things like run the church as a business, uh, that can be the truest and best thing to say, and it can be the worst and most heretical thing to say. And because you're good uh, you know, at another job doesn't mean you're good at a church. On the other hand, people who are good at their other jobs are of, often tremendous in the church because they bring all those skills to bear and then those skills are in service to the gospel. That's, that's a remarkable thing to watch. And so that's what, that's what Peter's trying to accomplish here. He's trying to teach them uh, to walk again and that happens because uh, these people have been resurrected to a new thing. Okay, so, um, you know, just a quick read through today and just to note some things. First uh, Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And when you hear that, you, of course, perk up. Apostle in biblical language means that you laid eyes on Jesus. Okay? So the apostle Paul is called an apostle only because uh, he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. So already... Peter, an eyewitness of Jesus Christ to the exiles. And now, you remember, you should be, and I hope when you read this text, I mean, I hope you can kind of remember this the next time you read it, or if you have sat down and read it with somebody, exiles doesn't just mean they got chased out during one of the persecutions that followed. Of course, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, uh, first bishop of Jerusalem, was killed early, as was Stephen, who was stoned. Uh, you know, early on, people were uh, murdered and persecuted, and through the sub subsequent centuries, you know, people were pressed out into exile. Yes, of course, it means that. And this is primarily written to Gentiles, who then, uh, either by way of pain or travel or work, were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Yes, it means that. But it also means if you're I was going to say a Jew, a Hebrew, or if you understand that the Lord chose the Hebrews, my father was a wandering Aramean. Yeah, that's how Abraham talks, Old Testament reading for today. My father was a wandering Aramean. It means you who are wanderers, and what it means is, it doesn't just mean you were forced out by way of, of, of a persecution. Yes, of course it means that. It also means more. It means that you're part of the nation of Israel. It means, as Paul says, that you've been grafted in. It means that you are a son of God. You know, it means that you have the right to sit at the Passover table. It means all the things it meant for a Jewish boy who was circumcised on the eighth day. It means you're part of the deal, part of the tribes, part of the chosen, no matter where you are. Israel was still God's people when they were in Egypt, when they were in Sinai, when they were in the Promised Land. Always God's people. So wherever you are, you're God's people. And he's trying to explain that to all the exiles. In the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, this is mostly Turkey, chosen and destined by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, 
and for the sprinkling of his blood. And immediately then, now where are you? I mean, if you're talking to people next door, you immediately say, well, Peter saw Jesus, and this is what Peter tells us, that God has a people. Who's God? God is the Father who chooses, the Son who sprinkles us with his blood, and the Holy Spirit who enlivens us for obedience. Dirty word, that. Unless, of course, you know the gospel, and then you see it as your only hope because uh, lack of obedience is death. Don't eat from the tree. Fasting for Lent. Don't eat from the tree. So uh, our great rebellion against obedience in our places in life, uh, great sinfulness. But what God has chosen you for, the Father has chosen you, destined you, wants you back, gathers you up. Why should anybody believe in Jesus? He wants you back. He wants you back in Eden. He wants you as part of the family. In a culture in which we live, where people are individuals, where families are broken, where people pay $160 an hour to have a friend one hour a week. In that culture, you can be extraordinarily attractive as the family of God. Churches grow because they are like family in all the best aspects, because they speak well of each other, because they're kind, because they support. And that's the reason people show up in a church. Duty comes later, obedience comes later. First, the message is, God, you have a father and he wants you back. And then, he loves you so because his son sprinkled you with his own blood. And then, Stick around, and the Spirit will show you what to do, prompt you to obedience. I mean, this is easy stuff. You learn your lines and say it out. God wants you back. That is an irresistible message in a world where people are alone and unloved, where they feel as if they've failed in many ways and can't admit it. That always has to be covered up. It's a remarkably potent message if you can learn to say it. Uh, You have a Father who loves you, You have a brother in Christ who stands by you. You have a spirit from God that will never leave you and will draw you to do what is best. Not just what is right, but what is best, okay? And then that gets uh, as grace and peace multiplied to you. What do people want? They'd like a bit of grace and they'd certainly like peace. That's what people want. Grace in the purest sense where we're loved in spite of ourselves. Not as licensed to continue being a jerk, but we're loved in spite of ourselves, and then the opportunity to be at peace with those around us. This is an irresistible thing, okay? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or blessed is uh, thanks, in in our parlance, blessed or praised or thanks. Thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, undeserved love poured out, applied. You know, mercy is grace that hits a target. So when people say, well, it's all squared up with me and the Lord, uh, that's not true until mercy, until grace actually hits them. 
the means of grace. By his great mercy, we've been born anew, code word for baptism, right? Remember, these are people who are coming to be baptized or have just been baptized. By his great mercy, we've been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, that has at least two meanings, as you recall. One is, of course, your own hope. That you, in, in, when you got baptized, you actually died uh, your death. You know, so Richard, you know, dies this past Thursday. Uh, you know, remarkably faithful guy over the course of the years. And uh, one of the great consolations is that we know he died his greatest death when he was baptized. This little one that happened Thursday. Um, it's troublesome and painful, but not the end of the line. Uh, in a way, he collects now on what the Lord had meant for him uh, from his baptism forward. Do you remember that was at the end of the chapter? You're baptized, the Lord puts uh, your resurrection on deposit in heaven, and someday you come to collect. Uh, that's what's happened with him, which is why we are, of course, sorrowful when people die, but at the same time, we uh, welcome death as a friend. And all of that's tied up in here. So thanks to God for Jesus Christ. Why? Because he born us again, and he gives us a hope, and he gives us a resurrection, and he gives us an inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, unfailing, kept in heaven, guarded by God's power, through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed at the last time. Isn't that cool? That describes the gift you've been given. Get yourself baptized, and here's what you've got. Something out there that can't be destroyed. Just waiting for you. And God himself guards it. It's as sure as God himself. This is, this is, this is irresistible. The only way that this can go wrong is if you and I get in the way of it. This is the deepest need of folk. Uh, you know, it's, it's amazing how this theme plays out over and over again. Just this week, you know, one of the books reviewed in the Wall Street Journal this week was a psychiatrist who said, uh, you know, it's a little snippet, but a, a psychiatrist who's just written a book who says, uh, I can't get it all done. I've been working with people my whole life, uh, and if they don't understand that God is there for them, uh, I can never get them all the way fixed. Fascinating stuff. And this is what people want. If you want to know, you know, if you want a school to grow, deliver this. If you want a church to grow, deliver this. If you don't do anything else, deliver this, and all will be well. This is what people want. They do not want to be alone. They do not want to be unloved. They do not want to be at odds with other people. They do not want to believe they, they don't want to have to make it on their own because anybody who's got a wit of sense knows they can't. We lie to people when we tell them they can make it on their own. You offer people the alternative, which is you don't have to make it on your own. You don't need to be God. God has already done it. God gives it to you as a gift. He stores it up. He guards it himself. You're safe. All is well. Let's go. You see how that's seamless? That is seamless from start to finish. It's, it's, this is just great stuff. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials. And you remember that 1 Peter is the book that talks more about suffering than any other book in the New Testament. And it was not unusual for these Christians to suffer. I just warn you um, that you ought not to be the source of suffering. Um, to be the source of suffering is antichrist. 
So yes, does suffering come? It comes. Is it horrible? It's horrible. Are you the source of it? If you are, you'd better think twice. If you're the source of suffering for other folks, especially in the church, you really need to think twice about what you're doing. Because suffering is antichrist. Does it come? Yes. But it is always a mark and measure of sin. On the other hand, if you're able to offer a place for people, uh, you know, a school where their kids aren't bullied, a church where people don't gossip, a place where people are focused out rather than in, a place where people bear one another's burdens, deliver that, you'll never have enough pew space. You'll never have enough seats in the school if you learn to deliver that. If you don't learn to deliver that, there's no difference between you all and the Elks Club. If you don't deliver Jesus in school or church, go home. There's no reason to be here. On the other hand, the positive way to say it is deliver Jesus in purity and truth, deliver Jesus in obedience and structure, deliver Jesus repeatedly as blessing now and guarantee of the future, and all is well all the time. Will you suffer? Yes. Why will you suffer? And this should be the only reason. Because the world is a demonic place and it belongs to the prince of darkness. But if you contribute to that, you know, that's not a good reason for suffering in the world. When you suffer on account of what is demonic, you can, in fact, rejoice in your suffering uh, because you know you're on the side of what is right and what is best. And so one of the values of the martyrs, when you read the stories, uh, you know, apocryphal some, uh, they burned him at the stake and he baked like bread. That's remarkable stuff. Or these folks who were skinned alive. But more common folk who um, used to take the host home from the supper and hide it for the time when the soldiers came to take him to the amphitheater and as they were about to be torn apart would commune. Best practice? Maybe not. Understandable, completely, in a pinch. When the lines are coming at you, you do all sorts of things. And I suppose taking a host home from the altar wouldn't uh, qualify as the worst of it. Come to an understanding of the church like that, um, and all will be well. In this you rejoice for a little while. You have to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is tested by fire, may redound to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I just want you to see, so often people talk about themselves in their tests as, uh, well, I've really grown through this test. And that, in fact, is a valuable thing, but it still is at point number two. The most important thing about being faithful at the point of testing, says the text, is that God is praised and honored and glorified. Is it good for you to grow through your temptations and through your struggles? It is good for you to grow. You can be more used to the Lord when you have sort of a higher level, higher threshold of pain and a greater level of faith and greater sense of community and greater focus on the Lord, not yourself. But that's all at point number two. At point number one is your faithfulness gives a good witness by way of praise, glory, and honor to God. See, it's all about learning your lines and spitting them out. Sometimes you spit them out by way of words, 
Sometimes you spit them out by way of deeds, but it's all about learning your lines and spitting them out. He's given a sermon to people who are coming into the church, and he's telling them that it's not like some confirmation, eighth grade confirmation, Lutheran thing, where you get confirmed and never come back to church again. What he's saying to them is, this is just the beginning. You remember in the early church, the confirmation normally went three years with a sponsor, okay? With a sponsor. In the church today, many Lutheran churches even, you can join in one day at a morning coffee. Why? Because we don't love people the way Peter loved people. We don't love people the way the church loved people. What's the flip side of that? The flip side of that is we teach people that the gifts are never ending. That's remarkable stuff. Yes, please. Hey, I thought you weren't here today. We prayed for you. We sent you to Texas. Oh, we prayed too soon. Forget all that stuff we prayed about. Well, then we'll say thanks that you're back. I just didn't expect to see you. Hey, good. Great to see you. No, you ask good questions. What do you want to know? No, I think it's all of that. I don't, the older I get, the less I break people into bits. I'm down, you know, I'm down to about two bits now, just body and soul. I used to be body, mind, and soul. I'm down to two. I, maybe I'll just get down to one lump. The Hebrew way is just to be a lump. You know, it was the Greeks who split people into bits because they liked your spirit. They didn't like your body much. I think it's both those things. You suffer physically uh, and mentally and spiritually and sometimes all together. And, of course, we know that that's all intertwined, right? We know that people who are, for example, people in the hospital will have a nice view, heal faster than people who don't. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy talk. How does that happen? Well, because their mind and their spirit catch up with their body or help their body along. I think it's all of those. Yeah. Well, there's always, there's always, you always have to be careful about have a slam bang in anything. There's always, and it always just takes one, one, doesn't it, to make the thing, you can't lay it down as a law. But uh, I, there'll be a day for you, my friend. Uh, already stored up. I would like to be there to see it. That would be interesting to watch that happen to you. I wonder if you see people welcomed into heaven. It must be a remarkable thing. I often wonder about family, uh, people, family when they bump into each other again. You know, it must be a remarkable thing to, to witness that. But we shall see. Yours, um, your struggle is more obvious than, than many struggles. But uh, one of the things about the room... Oh, I know, I know you were. Well, you're teasing in a half sense, but in another half sense, you're absolutely right. Um, because if you, if you go around the room, um, well, there's all sorts of pain and all sorts of blindness. And if you go around the room, uh, it would be interesting to have that told out. But all forgiven. So I, anyway, I, I would think it's both things, because these people's lives were at points in jeopardy. Very early in the first century, you know, people were sort of put to death for this kind of thing. We can hardly remember that. We can hardly imagine it, you know, for us. Yes, please. Right.
I think that's, a, I think that's bang on right. Um, the lonely way is most painful <coughs> inside the church. Why do you think that's true? I, I have my own idea why it's true. Why do you think it's true? Partly. Yes, the qu I, I, I actually did. I just didn't say it in the same way. Um, she said the lonely way, the lonely way is an expected thing outside the church, but it's frightfully painful inside the church, uh, this lonely way of going on. And I was quizzing why, why, is it, why is it so painful inside the church? What do you say? <coughs> exactly. Because it's not how it's meant to be. Sorry, go ahead. The answer is because it's not the way it's meant to be. If there's any place where the, you should not be lonely, it's in the church, right? If there's one place in all the world you shouldn't be lonely, it's the church. If, in fact, we are exiles together, family together, have one confession. You know, Sasa, who coined this phrase, the lonely way, he's in the bulletin today, and he, he says, you know, we'll play with anybody who confesses the Nicene Creed. I was kind of thinking about that this morning during the service, which is a way of not being lonely. But I will tell you, the loneliness in the church, because you expect more of people, because you expect more of people is a frightful loneliness. The other thing, though, the other side, take the other side, too, the gospel side of that is, and you've done this, I know you have, when you've found somebody who is like-minded, that is the sweetest thing. When you've when you found somebody in the church that you can be completely honest with and they still love you, you can reveal, and this is what private confession was meant to be. Private confession was meant to have a spiritual father, to have a confessor, was to be able to say to somebody, look what I am, and to have that person to say, that's right, and it's all forgiven, and then to sort of carry on, um, seal of the confessional, why is that? Because then you leave, and it really is all left behind, and you don't have to be lonely. Isn't that great? It's great stuff. It's possible in the church, it's possible, but it's only possible, uh, this is, you know, Aristotle, it's only possible if you agree on first principles. It's only possible, that's why the church has creeds. This church will only survive, and, uh, and our church will only survive. Uh, I wonder, in the Iowa futures market, I wonder if you can get money down on the Lutheran church, the way you can, the way you can get money down on you know, presidential candidates. It would be interesting to get some money down on the LCMS and see what people would think about that. Hmm, hmm, that would be interesting. Um, will the church survive? Well, it'll survive if it, if it sort of sticks together as Lutheran Church, right? It'll survive so long as it sticks by the Christ. It's just the text. I mean, how easy is this? I'm an apostle. I'm going to deliver to you what I saw. What I saw is the Father send his Son, who sprinkled all of you with blood and empowers you by his Holy Spirit. And that means that you're all saved and are all in it together now. And though you'll suffer a bit, there is out there a thing that draws you, a thing that holds you. There is, in fact, a place where you're never alone because there is this group of folks waiting for you. It's the window here. The glory of that window, as much as it's Jesus, he scowls a bit sometimes at me, but he, uh, he does. Part of the glory of that window is the stream of people moving up it. You're never alone when that window is there. And the bottom right, where the angel is spearing the demon down to keep him from nipping at you, grabbing you off the path. That's, that's this. That's this text. You know? 
Um, the question is, is the lonely way truly suffering? You're talking about external suffering. In this, in this sense? I think it's all of the, or is it external? I think it's all of those. When you think about this, it is primarily external because it is to people who are exiled and out of the, out of the range of, or out of the, out of the stream of normal good Roman citizens. You know, the Romans were great. The Pax Romana existed because they basically said, if you play along, we'll leave you alone. I mean, they let cultures maintain their cultures. If you play along, we'll leave you alone. And that's why Christians were so good because they couldn't force themselves to pour out on the altar, Caesar is, Caesar is God, or even half God. Some of the Caesars didn't demand to be all God, just part God, right? So um, it's like the Jews when Jesus says, the coin in your pocket, what do you got? And they pull the coin out, and the coin says, it doesn't say this in the text, but if it's a drachma, Caesar is divine. I mean, they, they have an idol in their pocket. It's part of the fun that Jesus is playing with them, right? What, what's your coin say? Who's that belong to? Caesar. Render to Caesar what Caesar's, including idolatry. Hmm. Okay. So the suffering comes in all senses, and this is good for all that happens. So in this you rejoice, now for a little while, so that the genuineness of your faith gets tested. See, this is invocavit, Luther. Stretch him, rest. Stretch him, rest. Stretch him, rest. Without having seen him, you love him, though you do not now see him. You believe in him, you rejoice with unutterable and exalted joy. As the outcome of your faith, you obtain the salvation of your souls. Boom. So first is, I'm Peter. Second is, this is what I'm delivering. Third is, aren't you lucky? And then there's this bit about the prophets who prophesied that they were to be here, searched and inquired about this salvation. They inquired what person or time was indicated by the Spirit of Christ within them when the predicted sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory came. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. The prophets were prophets not for themselves, but for you in the things which have now been announced to you by those who preach the good news to you through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look into. Do you realize how fortunate you are that you get to see? Think of the Think of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Noah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Job, Daniel, all looking forward to something they never saw. And how fortunate you are now to be able to look back and see that, that Jesus mounts the cross and dies for you. It's an extraordinary gift. Things that the prophets long to see, secrets that the angels long to peer into, you actually get to see. It is the normal problem of being rich, of course. You know, what's the problem with rich kids? There's no surprise, right? And, you know, that doesn't mean necessarily you go bad if you have a lot of money, but it's a great danger. In the same with you, great gift. You've seen what the angels always wanted to see. You get to see it face to face. You taste it on the altar. You wear it in your baptism. And sometimes then we disdain that. And then just last thing, and we're sort of running up against it, but that's okay. So here, here's what happens. I'm Peter. I'm delivering the Lord. Now that I've delivered the Lord, you should see how fortunate you are, and knowing how fortunate you are, this is what life looks like. <coughs> the trouble here is, is that now this is the point where pastors always sort of give you a laundry list of things to do. You know, why don't you go be, and, and I handed this out on one of the things, you know, why don't you go be, 
Um, you know, why, why don't you go be more holy? Why don't you go be uh, more kind? Why don't you go be? And the answer is, because uh, you can't without the Lord giving it for you, doing it to you, working it through you. Yeah, so gird up your minds, be sober, set your hope fully upon the grace that is coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There was that question about why grow up, and the answer is simply because the Holy Spirit prompts you to obedience, and he can't get as much out of you if you're immature as if you are mature. Why grow up in the church? So that God can get more out of you, so that you'll learn your lines and tell them out, so that the church grows, so that when he says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, you say, that's right, I'm in on that. Here I am, send me, Hineni, that great, you find that Hineni, Samuel, when he's a boy, same response, Abraham, Hineni, here I am. There's the Hebrew response of, I'll, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And that, then a gospel word, okay, kill your son. Remarkable stuff. Gird up your minds, be sober, set your hope fully on the grace that's coming. So you have grace out there now, so you live in a particular way. You have grace out there, so you live now in a particular way. As obedient children, there it is again. Don't let the world shape you according to its passions, but let he who has called you, he who is holy, shape you. As it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. And then a warning, if you invoke the Father, if you invoke his Father, him who judges each one impartially according to his deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Fear goes with awe, goes with the first commandment, goes with obedience. You know that you are ransomed from your futile ways. And just so you know, if you carry on the way you used to be, you're futile. Your life is wasted. That's what it means. You want to waste your life? Carry on like you were before you were baptized. You want to waste your life? Join the church and then not let it make any difference at all. You want to waste your life? Pretend you're a Christian. You know, for an hour a week on Sunday. You want to waste your life? You want a futile life? You want a life that's absolutely meaningless? Forget about obedience to the Trinity who saved you. On the other hand, you know you were ransomed from futile ways, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. He was destined before the foundation of the world, was made manifest in our times for your sake. Through him you have confidence in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God, not in yourself, not in anything else. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, there it is again. For a sincere love of the brethren, love one another earnestly from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living word of God. Yeah? So put away all malice and guile and insincerity and envy and slander and like newborn babes, long for pure spiritual milk that you grow up to salvation for you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. There are two kinds of people. Those are peop there are people who return uh, good for good and there are people who return evil for good. The saddest thing in life is to do good toward people and have them return evil to you. Beyond the pain, it is utterly incomprehensible. The other side is the greatest joy in life where a good that perhaps you don't even know that you do is returned 
a uh, hundred years later uh, with such great joy. There, the, jo one of the, the great joy of people who go back and thank their teachers. I can count on one hand the teachers who made a difference in my life. I can count them on one hand. Um, and I've let every one of them know. You can count on one, you know, if you're, and this goes with the lonely way thing. If you've bumped into a couple of people who've made a difference in your life, you know, to let them know would be a great joy for them. You know, one side is to return evil for good. The other is to multiply the good you've been given. And that's what the church is supposed to be. The church is this great multiplication table where good, you know, finds exponentially more good and just sort of carries on. It's funny, you know, it sort of boils down to you can be the kind of church you want to be. I mean, that's what he's saying to you. It's time to be baptized. It's time to have the supper. You can be the church you want to be. What kind of church do you want to be? You need to be the one that's obedient. Anything else is futile. It's fascinating stuff. And this for people who just got baptized, brand new. All right, so that's just quick review. Now you sort of take that as baseline stuff, and you should rehearse your lines this week. See if you can read this text, and see if you can say everything. Peter delivers the Trinity, who deliver Christ, who draw you into a new life and a future that's guaranteed, but pay attention to your present. And this is what life looks like. That's what the church is meant to be. All right, next week then, First um, Peter 2. Let's see what happens next, okay? Let's pray, let's go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.